look at David and Jonathan and their relationship, uh, it, it really comes into play when we get to Second Samuel, but if we have to lay the groundwork now, and then uh, it'll all make sense a few months from now, I suppose. But let's stand and we'll read uh, a few places here. In uh, We're going to actually cover chapters 18 through 20, so we obviously can't read it all, but we'll refer to it. And uh, I do want to read one of the more important parts of it, beginning in verse 18, or chapter 18, we'll read the first five verses, and then we'll skip over chapter 20. And see how it goes. So, 1 Samuel chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the son of Jonathan, the soul of Jonathan, was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day, and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David, because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of his robe that was on him, and gave it to David, and his armor, and even his sword, and his bow, and his belt. And David went out, and was successful wherever Saul sent him, that Saul set him over the men of war, and this was good in the sight of all the people, and also the sight of Saul's servants. So basically Saul brought David and had him relocate to live uh, there with him and was uh, kind of made him the captain of his army uh, at that point. But we also see this relationship with, with his son Jonathan, right? <clears throat> we'll turn over to chapter 20. And here we'll start, let's just start reading verse 12, give you a sense of what's going on here. As Saul and John. Uh, excuse me, Jonathan and David uh, make a covenant with one another. Verse 12, And Jonathan said to David, The Lord and the God of Israel be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow on the third day, behold, if it is well disposed for David, shall I not send and disclose it to you? But shall it please my father to do you harm? The Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also, if I do not disclose it to you, and set your send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Okay, so last week we uh, dealt with David and Goliath, and we saw that Goliath represents any enemy we face that outwardly appears stronger than we are. If the Lord is sufficiently large in our eyes, then we will not fear anything to the point that we cannot defeat it. And I thought, you know, in a sense, when Jesus talks about, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can cast this mountain to the sea. I think he is speaking uh, metaphorically, of course, um, that uh, whatever we face, whatever obstacle, and that would be a great obstacle, right, uh, that we can by faith overcome it. And that's what David did with uh, Goliath. He overcomes Goliath because the Lord was greater than his eyes than the giant Goliath. So David's primary concern was for the honor of the Lord, and so there was no enemy that he would not face. 
David realizes the difficult events in his life have produced the skills necessary to battle for the Lord. If you look back and he used a slingshot because that's how the Lord had delivered him from the bears and the lions and so forth as he protected the sheep. So those are some of the things that we dealt with when it came to David and Goliath. Now I did not, was not able to, didn't have the time to deal with one uh, thing that I wanted to and Someone brought it up in the uh, question and answer that we did. And that was uh, David going around and asking everybody to confirm this, this, what he had heard that Saul would uh, give him a, a, his daughter as a wife, you know, and do give great honor if uh, they would defeat Goliath. And he, it said that he went around several times, asked several people, and basically established that that was a fact. And one thing, one application to that that I think might be good for us to remember, and I think it really comes to play in our day and age, although we should we should always, if we're people of the truth, right, we should be very concerned in truth and not want to spread gossip or rumors or even things that we aren't sure of. we got to be very careful about that because it undermines our credibility if, People begin to realize that we repeat things and we really don't know what we're talking about or, um, you know, we haven't taken the time to uh, deal with those things effectively. And so it kind of, David doing this kind of reminds me of that particular issue. I'm going to give you two examples, uh, where preachers, for instance, have, and not just preachers, but that's especially worse when it's spoken to the pulpit have related things that are not true, and yet, and I think it's done to some degree damage. Um, One would be uh, something in the early 1980s, there was an Amway distributor who was trying to get people to uh, buy his product and not buy Procter & Gamble's product, for instance, and he uh, made the statement that the moon and the star logo on the Procter & Gamble logo was satanic, and this accusation morphs into rumors that a partner gamble supported the Church of Satan with its prophets, resulted in all kinds of outrageous stories that the executives uh, were appearing on nationwide talk shows claiming allegiance to the Church of Satan, and this got completely out of hand, all because a guy uh, made a statement, and the problem is, is that it would be, especially Christians, that would be gullible with this because, you know, if, if we knew that something was supporting the Church of Satan or, you know, some satanic church, we would be up in ours. We would be totally against that, right? And we would be, could be easily become guilty of spreading that. The problem is it wasn't true. It is just a guy trying to sell products and typical, uh, you know, American, uh, you know, do whatever he had to do to succeed. Uh, he makes up a story, and that's what happened. Another one, this is one, and I remember both of these, although uh, I don't necessarily remember the first one ever being spoken in, in the, for the pulpit in a church I was at. But this second one, I do remember preachers saying this from the pulpit, and this is where, you know, it really kind of bothersome. In the early 70s, a Christian author, Joe Musser, Musser was writing a novel called Beyond a Pale Horse. 
anybody's ever read that, I have never read it. Never heard of it before. So, but in it, he authored a scenario about a giant computer in Belgium. Now, before I go any further, does that ring any bells with anybody? If you've heard that, you heard that. The computer in Belgium. Have you ever heard of this? Before I, before I give you the details, I just wanted because I would have immediately bells would immediately be going off in my mind because I've heard this from early on in groups, churches, and, and kind of the, in what I was raised in. So that's why this really kind of hurt me up. It's a scenario in his book, you'll remember, a fictitious book, that there's a giant computer in Belgium in a building that occupies an entire city block. The computer's nickname is the Beast. They say, where did that come from? Well, you don't have to think very hard to think about where that came from, right? And supposedly it contained information on every person in the world, along with a unique ID number for each one. And so, unfortunately, it becomes widely distributed as a fact rather than a fantasy. And again, I have heard pastors from the pulpit speak of this computer, the beast, that in, in modern times it, it's antiquated and it's almost laughable, right? Occupying a, a building of an entire city block. Um, but that was able to keep track of everybody, and so they say well, there is fulfillment of the prophecies in Revelation, right? Except that it's not true, and so you perpetrate something, maybe your doctrinal view of a certain, and it's all based on, on fiction. And so I'm just, you know, and, and what, maybe something more closer to home for some of us, is this is one of the big problems. I haven't been on Facebook for probably a good three years or more, but one of the things that really used to hurt me bad on that was Christians, you know, everybody, but certain, and even Christians passing on the latest thing that is totally untrue. And I remember there was this one woman that I knew, she was uh, an older woman who lived in another city, but I knew her, you know, at conferences I've been, you know, knew her quite well. And, we were friends, and so we got her post. And she was just, oh, she would pass on everything. And, you know, you check this, and this is nonsense. But it fit into a particular view or a particular doctrinal view. And I I would, every once in a while, I'd see this, and I would check it out. And I would just respond to the comments that uh, this is not true. To the bottom of it, this is a Christian, and um, she's a, 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 a wonderful Christian woman in every respect, but she's fallen into this trap of repeating things without checking it. And I don't like it, because this is a a big problem with the left, right? I mean, they've been doing this now for the last three or four years, just non-stop. But they're not the only ones who do it. And the right can do this, Christians can do this, and and it's, it's wrong. And so we want to just be careful that we do not on false information and I was willing to I certainly don't want to be guilty of that I'm very thankful I believe that everything I have said whether personally or from the pulpit over the last several years has been just checked out to be true and I'm glad of that but it, it, it's, it's difficult because you got people when people lie to you uh, you know without any remorse and as if they really believe it it's hard to sometimes discern it so I understand it's, it's difficult it's easy to get taken in sometimes 
But let's just be, let's just make it, we should make the effort to be honest and to make sure that what we say is truthful so that we don't lose credibility, right? And, and it, that doesn't apply just to a pastor. Certainly it applies to him, but all of us, we're all people of the truth, right? So there's something to be aware of and uh, things that we've seen certainly uh, in our day and age. Sure. So this brings us to the relationship between Jonathan and David. And there's certainly a contrast in these three chapters with Saul's hatred and treatment of David and Jonathan's love for him. The first thing we see here is a covenant made between David and Jonathan, which, as I said, will be significant when we get over to Second Samuel chapter 9. But there is reason to believe that the exchange of clothes and armor that we see Jonathan when he gives to uh, David, you got to remember, this is, I think, an act of faith by Jonathan, because Jonathan knows that David has been uh, chosen to be the next king. He realizes that that means he will not be in all likelihood. And so, I mean, I, I see Jonathan as one of the uh, wonderful characters in Scripture. We don't see very much of him, unfortunately, but I don't think anything bad is said about Jonathan. He is, uh, and we see just, he, he's loyal, and while so many would say, well, my father's king, I'm next in line, so I'm going to do whatever I can to, to get that, Jonathan knows what the Lord has said, the Lord, what, what the Lord wants to do, and he is completely okay with that, and as he gives his uh, stuff to uh, David, he is, he is acknowledging that he is David's servant, that David will be king, that he doesn't know, of course, that he's going to die. Um, but he, he acknowledges, he submits to the Lord, and, he lo- and not only that, it's not begrudgingly, but he loves David as he loves himself. And so, um, this is, I think, a, a good example of saving faith that causes us to acknowledge who the rightful king is. That we have in vain usurped his place and that we have been of it and we trust in Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. And this is against Saul's hatred and jealousy. Saul reminds us that the world will not have Christ rule over them. Even though Saul knows that David at this point has been chosen to be king, uh, Saul will have none of it. Saul, as I said, I think this is just more proof that Saul is not a believer. He, he has not got a regenerate heart. And it doesn't matter what the Lord says in these things, even though he continues to now and then speak about the Lord and saying some sort, you know, again, it's, it's part of the culture, and I think it would be difficult for him to, as it would have been any Jew at that time, to act like the Lord doesn't exist or, or openly rebel against the Lord. It would have undermined his position as king even. So, again, just because he speaks about the Lord, he, he lives in a culture, a, a culture of Yahweh. And so, I, I cannot take that to think that any way that he is a, a real believer, though his heart has been changed. Um, but, he does not acknowledge the uh, rule that God has set up. Um, and so, uh, it reminds us of this world also, that will not have Christ to rule over them. And so, they will allow Christians to exist as long as they stay in the background, 
right? As long as you don't try to, uh, I don't want to hear about it. I don't want you to try to uh, say anything against me, make me feel uncomfortable. Keep your religion to yourself, which, of course, true Christianity can't do that. A Christian who does not profess who he is, that is, is bringing his profession into question. So if someone said, don't make your nest in the tree because the whole forest is doomed. You know, Christian realizes we are aliens, that this world is not our home, that the, that lost people, by and large, uh, are not on my side, family or not, friends or not. Saul, uh, we'll see here later, uh, tries to kill his own son at one point. He's so enraged because that his son is uh, loyal to David. And so it reminds us to be aware of who the enemies are. Doesn't mean that you have to treat them like an enemy. Doesn't mean that they're necessarily you know, enemies in the sense they want to kill you. But they don't care about your Lord. They don't care about your profession. They don't care about what you want as far as serving the Lord. And they're not going to help you in your Christian walk. That speaks to all lost people. So you have to be aware of that and and, know, and, and have, certain, have certain boundaries and walls up. In this, and I think we see an example of that all through scripture, but certainly here. So, uh, notice also that Saul's attempt to get David killed by giving him dangerous responsibility. We didn't read some of this, but like starting in chapter 18, um, that, uh, Saul is jealous over David because he has sent him out, made him kind of the captain to go out and fight the Philistines. He's had, he's very successful. People start chanting, at some point, um, they start, they, this, the women have a song that belt. Saul has struck down his thousands. David is ten thousands. Well, that certainly doesn't go over well. Um, so, you know, it's, it's clear that, they, that Saul is putting David out there uh, with something he should be doing to some degree, but he's trying to get David to die in battle. That's not working. Instead, everything that David uh, does is blessed by the Lord, and, and, and eventually Saul comes to the point where he admits that. He realizes that. And, uh, in fact, we, we, we kind of notice this in verse 12 of chapter 18, where Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Saul realizes this. And so it uses there, a, the word for fear is a mild form of fear, whereas in verse 15, and when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. It's a different word. It's a word that speaks of, of a kind of like a terrible uh, dread. Saul eventually begins to realize what's going on here, and he kind of knows, in a sense, he probably sees the handwriting on his wall, wall on the wall. But he doesn't say, "Okay, Lord, I'm sorry, I did it. I'm going to now jump on board with you." He fights. But he knows it's the Lord's will every step of the way and eventually loses his life. Well, like David's greater son, David has a knack for dividing families. Uh, Jonathan loves David. Saw's daughter, Michael, who he marries here a little bit, she loves David. Um, and more of them, both of them saved David's life, which again, that doesn't make Saul very happy as well. <clears throat> and so, you got Saul, you know, he, David plays in verse 10, David uh, is playing the, the layer for uh, Saul because he's 
basically become a raving maniac. Perhaps today we would call it manic depressive. He's, uh, you know, seems to be okay one day. The next day he's running around just beside himself with rage, throwing spears at uh, David, and then one time even his son. So he's playing that leer, and of course, as we've already seen, he, um, Saul tries to kill him, and or remove, in this case, removes him from his presence because he doesn't want to look at him. And things are just, you see, just kind of spiraling downward. Uh, in verse 17, Saul was said, Oh, David, I will give you my oldest daughter, Meribah. Uh, no. Merib. Uh, to wed. And when the time came for him to do that, he reneges on it. And so, he's not really sure why he's doing that. If he, what if David, as David said, he wasn't worthy of that, whether David refused or probably Saul just did it to irritate David because he's being mean to him, but we're not really sure what's going on there. But he does find out that Michael, his younger daughter, loves David. And so he does consent to let her marry David uh, thinking that somehow that'll be a snare to David, and whether that means that she, uh, Michael has a personality that is problematic, and Saul knows that, and thinks that marrying her will, will, be, will be good for David, which is probable, because later on she does become a problem. Or, maybe Saul is just thinking that, well, if David's married and now has the family to take care of, that that will distract him in his battles, and perhaps uh, he'll be defeated in that way, uh, you know, we're not really sure, but that's what takes place. And uh, and so part of the dowry then for that is he tells David, go kill a hundred uh, Philistines and maybe their foreskin. Probably in doing that, they would know they weren't Jews, but you actually went and you killed the Philistines, and again, that would make the Philistines hate you even more, and Perhaps he thought that would be another way to ruin David. But of course, since the Lord is with David, David brings him 200. Uh, and that just, at that point, uh, Saul really begins to realize that in verse 29, Saul is even more afraid of David. And so Saul was David's enemy continually. So at this point, David knows he can't even go near Saul. So that, that whole relationship since it's over, David goes into hiding. And we'll, next week we'll get more into what's going on at that point. So then in chapter 19, Saul is, uh, I think they're eating around the table, and uh, Saul tells uh, Jonathan and all the servants that I want you to kill David by all means possible. And Jonathan kind of defends David and says, You know, David's been loyal to you, there's no reason for this. Why? Are you saying this? And Saul kind of reneges for a while and says, yes, you're right. And uh, kind of lets it go right there. And uh, and so I think at that point, David is, is, is let one more time into Saul's presence um, at that, because, because of what Jonathan said. But then in verse 8, David goes out and kills more Philistines and... Uh, He's brought in to play his lyre before um, a liar before uh, Saul the third time. And it says that Saul tried to pin David to the wall of the spear. And that was the, that was the last time I think that David and 
resolve uh, live with any kind of peace at that point. And so, when David flees, Saul tells his servants, wait for David at his house, and in the morning when he comes out, kill him there. Michael hears about this, so she warns David, lets him out the back window, as it were, during the night, puts uh, different things in the bed to make it look like David is there, and then when uh, Saul calls and sends him in there to find out what's going on, uh, she says, well, David's not feeling well. Eventually Saul, you know, goes and looks in the bed and realizes what she's done, and he's upset with his daughter for, of course, uh, doing that, letting David escape. She says, well, David threatened me, threatened my life if I didn't, so she gets out of it. That's kind of the, some of the intrigue that's going on there in chapter 19 as well. Then, it, it, chapter 19 ends, though, with uh, um, David fleeing to where Samuel was. Saul hears about it, sends messengers there to go and get him, and as they approach the area, they all start prophesying. They, they Basically, the Holy Spirit overcomes. They start prophesying. We're not told what, but I would kind of assume, or at least a good guess would be that they're prophesying that David will be king. So the Lord brings it to naught. Uh, Saul finally gets fed up with this. He sends them like three times or whatever. And so he goes down there himself, take matters into his own hands, and the Holy Spirit comes upon him. He strips himself naked, so he's, he's in a sense removed his royal garments. He's made to act out humility of, of losing his position, as it were. And he starts prophesying. And again, does that change thought as he say, look, you know, obviously I've got to uh, start accepting this. No, he just doubles down and does everything he can to kill David. And so that brings us to chapter 20. Um, and again, I don't want to miss the main subject here. Well, by the way, uh, Psalm 59 is an instance where David uh, is inspired to write a song. And he, it says here, I mentioned that David would soft sit men to watch his house in order to kill him. So there's a message of a song that came out of this. Deliver me from my enemies of God, protect me from those who rise up against me. So in that, this case, he was talking about Saul, right? And the enemy, uh, the bloodthirsty men, and so forth. And, and if he tosses him to Isaac's person, you know, saying of your strength, I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. You have been to me a fortress and a refuge. So David knows that it wasn't his wife and her plan that saved his life. That the Lord used that, right? But the Lord is the one who has kept him alive and saved him from Saul. So sometimes, you know, when we have a little bit of a background, that it makes it even more interesting, is it not? But um, verse 20. The main subject of this chapter is the covenant between David and Jonathan. And there's a lot of political intrigue, a lot of misconduct, but there's a lot of historical significance in what's going on with David. But at the heart of this is really a, a very amazing covenant of love between these two men. And if you, you got to think it through. What's going on here? When This is Jonathan who is 
would be the legitimate heir, and he would be king. But what happens, generally speaking, uh, you know, it happens today even, but it certainly happens in the course of human history, when a someone usurps a king, the family line or whatever, and he takes control, when the first thing they do is kill the former king and all his descendants, so that there would be no one who had any right to the throne, right? It's just how things a lot of times work. If you went over to uh, uh, second, First Kings, there's, there's several places in Scripture where you see this being done, actually, where they try to kill the uh, offspring of the former king. And so, Dave, Jonathan realizes then that um, when David becomes king, that's a possibility, and so he may, basically makes David swear that he would, because of his love, and it makes it very clear, because of your love for me, please extend that to my descendants, and keep them alive, and do them good, and don't do them any harm. And so as you start to think about this whole covenant, it sounds kind of familiar. It, it, it sounds like uh, there's, there's one who realizes that they are condemned. Jonathan realizes that because Saul is condemned, in a sense, he's condemned. Um, and so he asked, because of his love, to be spared, especially, but especially his descendants. That, that's kind of the key that, that he keys in on. So it looks a lot like perhaps the everlasting covenant. There's, there's a, some application you could make where the Father loves the Son, and based on the love for the Son, all those who are in the Son, Jesus Christ, right, uh, are treated with steadfast love, not based on what they deserve, because they are, in a sense, they kind of is condemned, but based on his love for another. And so, uh, another way perhaps we could see the example of it was that uh, Jonathan represents fallen man, condemned, and yet, uh, you know, God spares and, and shows love for them. But I think you have to kind of look at it more in the sense of the eternal covenant because what's going to happen in chapter 9 and chapter 10 is that David, once the king is established, Saul and Jonathan are dead, David says, Who can I show love to because I promised to do so with Jonathan. Because I love Jonathan so much, I now want to show that love to somebody. And so it's a sense of which God has done for us, right? Because of what Christ has done, because of the love of the Godhead, he now extends his love to those who don't deserve it. So that's the Christian. So there's just a great little uh, thing going on here that demonstrates it and foreshadows the covenant that brings us into salvation. And so, uh, verses uh, we read verses 12 through 17. It's based on love. David promises to show mercy and not justice to all those who descend from Jonathan. So, again, you can kind of see all this going on. And the word here does not mean love or compassion, just love or compassion, but it has the idea of faithfulness, of reliability, of a uh, the ESV always usually translates as steadfast love. It's, it's not just love, it's an Old Testament term 
that speaks of covenant love. Because this is a covenant, right? But it isn't just love, but, but royal love. Not merely kindness, but dependable kindness. Not merely affection, but affection that has committed itself to something, to loving. So we're seeing what God's love looks like. Love gives itself in covenant and gladly promises devoted love in that covenant. And as we think about 1 Corinthians 13 that we'll be getting to not too awful long from now. As as God there describes what love is, and this is the same thing going on here. The covenant partner can rest in the security of what was promised. They can appeal to it, which we can too, right? We, We appeal, we pray in Jesus' name, we appeal to the Father based on His love for the Son and what the work, the finished work of the Son. And so, uh, that, that's our, our, my security, I've said this before, is not, of course, my own works, like that's insecurity. But I know that I, my, my, my security in knowing that I shall always be saved that I can never fall is because of the love that the Father has for the Son. As long as the Son exists, and He always will, or can't ever not exist, right? And the Father loves the Son. They have promised that they love me as he loves the Son. That that love has been shed abroad and been given to us because I am now united to his Son. I am joint heirs with the Son. Right? I'm a child of God. I am seen as a child. So my security is in the love of the triune God. It's, uh, my security is as strong as their love. And we know their love is not going anywhere. Right? So, it, so it's hugely important to understand covenant love uh, because this God, we know that God will never get tired of us uh, just say, you know what, I, I've had enough of this. It won't come to an end. It won't, it won't ebb away or fade. We dealt with this in a kind of a little bit different way in First Peter chapter 1. It says our inheritance will never fade away. It will never diminish. Right? Say, well, how can he say that? Because the strength of our salvation is in the relationship with the Father and the Son. You know, all those things are extremely important, and I think brought out in many ways in Scripture. Another thing to glean from this is that it is because of the covenant that David has some measure of rest and stability, even in the worst of circumstances. Uh, at the end here, uh, what goes on, uh, I'll say this we run out of time. In chapter 20, uh, Jonathan uh, knows that things aren't good. So they're, they're talking, he's talking with David. He says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. Tomorrow at breakfast, I'm going to kind of feel my father out. But, you know, what does he really feel about you? And if it's clear that he's intent on killing you, tomorrow I'll, you, you stay here in the field and hide yourself. And tomorrow I'll come out here with a boy with my bow and arrow and I'll shoot an arrow like I'm target practicing or something, and I'll send him to look for him. And if I say, all right, look, you've gone too far, the arrow is on this side of you, then that is the indication that my father is not going to kill you, that things are okay, you can show yourself. But if I tell the boy that you're not, you haven't gone far enough, but the arrow is beyond you, 
then you better flee. And so the next morning, uh, he fills his father out. Well, what happens, of course, is that uh, for three days, John, David doesn't show up at the table to eat. And eventually, on the third day, Saul says, where's David? And Jonathan says, well, he asked if he could be, go to uh, his hometown for the sacrifice and all that. And Saul just kind of explodes, and that's when he ends up going his javelin at Jonathan, because he knows that Jonathan is loyal to David. Well, when he does that, Jonathan escapes with his life, um, and that's what he knows. So that's what, that's, what, that's the scenario that, that plays out. He shoots his arrow and tells the boy to go further. Well, the boy sends the boy home. I guess no one's around, so they meet, they embrace. And they basically, that's the last time they ever see each other, right? And uh, so they, they say goodbye. But Jonathan tells David at the end here, at the end of chapter 20, go in peace. Verse 42. And Jonathan said to David, go in peace. Now, well, how can he say that? Because Saul is trying to kill him, right? How can he say, go in peace? Because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between me and you, between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he arose and departed, Jonathan went to the city. There's, there's peace here, because Jonathan knew that David was going to uh, show steadfast love to his descendants. So, so what Jonathan was concerned about, that is his family, he knows he's taking care of. But David can have peace because David has been uh, assured that he will be king. David uh, knows that no matter how it goes, uh, there's a covenant uh, that uh, they ha- that he has with Jonathan that um, has secured. The Lord has demonstrated that he is going to take care of David no matter what. And so think about a few verses here that where the Bible speaks about this. Therefore, since we have been Justified by faith, we have peace with God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained access by faith into this grace, in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. See, we can have peace because we have peace with God that cannot be taken away. We can have peace in suffering. We can rejoice in suffering. David could go because he knows that the Lord is the one who has promised to take care of him. John 16.33 I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation but take heart I have overcome the world. So we're just reminded that we can have peace even when the people are trying to kill us. doesn't mean that our life is peaceful. You don't have to have a, you don't have to have a peaceful life to have peace. You don't have, you don't have to have peaceful circumstances. No, you just have to rest in the promises of God, the steadfast love of God in Christ Jesus. That this body they may kill. God's word might still. So again, just some things I think demonstrate in some ways um, what we have in Jesus Christ. Read these verses and I think speak to the same thing. Um, Psalm 2 7 I will tell 
of the decree, the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, and the kings of the earth your possession. Um, so there we see a, I think, an example of the everlasting covenant where the salvation, we are the possession, we are the, the, the nations, the heritage, uh, an everlasting possession. And so uh, it was something that the Father promised to the Son. Hebrews 13, 20. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. Right? So that's where we get this term eternal or everlasting covenant, uh, is that, of course, Christ was slain in time 2,000 years ago, but it was based on part of the working out of the covenant of old before the world began. In other words, God did not create the world. Um, and he had things he wanted to do with it. And, and, and the whole idea of redeeming sinful man was something that he didn't see coming or as an afterthought, right? He creates the world because it was always going to be a way in which he was going to demonstrate his love and mercy, with which God can't, can't demonstrate mercy if there's not sin. If there's not no one condemned, if there's not someone who doesn't deserve it, mercies can only be given to those who don't deserve it, right? And so uh, all that was part of God's plan. It always has been. The sin and the fall was not something that God had no control over. I know that it's all part of that. Well, we'll stop there today. Is there anything else? Any questions or comments? Yes, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for uh, this day and for uh, this opportunity to get together and to uh, examine the scriptures and hear from you and pray, Lord, that you might help us to find application and grow in our faith. Bless the service to follow and our fellowship and meal and all that we're going to do this day. 